welcome to the Keen on Yoga podcast, bringing you the stories of many people who in various ways are attempting to walk the path of yoga. Our intention is to inspire your own practice and commitment to yoga beyond the mat and in all areas of life. We consider this an offering, a service to the community and labour of love. If you feel inclined, any donations are appreciated, just visit our page and click the donate button at www.keenonyoga.co.uk forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Today's guest on the Keenan Yoga podcast is Annie Pace. Annie has practiced Ashtanga Yoga for over 40 years and was one of the most adept practitioners, having mastered the first four series of Ashtanga completely, introduced to the fifth and advanced C section by Batabi Joyce. She's made over 30 trips to Mysore, which she counts as a home away from home. And over her time in Mysore, she not only studied asana, but also is an accomplished and heartfelt performer of Indian devotional music as well as a keen cook of Indian foods, which she is well known for sharing with her friends and students in her community of Crestone, Colorado. She lives here in a remote setting, in a small village of a couple of hundred people, on the border of New Mexico, where she also has a Shala Shakti Sharanam. Here, she truly embodies the yoga lifestyle of simplicity and ethically-based living. Living entirely off-grid, she cooks with Ayurvedic guidelines and outside teaching devotes the rest of her time to study all aspects of yoga, particularly as a devotional practice. Welcome to the Keenan Yoga Podcast, Annie. Good day, Adam. Good morning. Good evening. To, well, good morning to you. Good, good evening to me. She's in Colorado, Boulder, I think. Um, so, no. Just, no, is that right? No, that is not correct. That's not right. Okay, where are you? Where are you now? Very too popular assumption. I've never lived in Boulder. Okay. I lived about an hour away from Boulder for some years uh-huh. when I was commuting to the yoga workshop with Richard Freeman. Right, yeah. And then I moved further away into the mountains, uh-huh. and I continued to commute some. Then I moved further away, and now I'm further than that. So I'm way down in southern Colorado. I'm much closer to New Mexico okay. than um, to any Colorado city that you would recognize. Right. Um, yeah. It's a very remote place. The population of my town is 151. Oh my god! Right. So you, so you like you like the solitude? Uh, yeah, but it's uh, amazing sense of community. So anyway, we can talk more about that. When yeah. We let's let's, <laughs> let's <laughs> where I am. Let's start on the yoga front. So before we go further down the road, let's start and just, how did you get into yoga? I believe you did get into yoga in Colorado. Is that right? Um, I got my appetite ignited when I was still living in the Chicago area. Okay. Mostly reading books, etc. And... Almost as soon as I moved to Colorado in 1979, I started practicing yoga. Right. And after books, after as many people of my generation say, oh, yeah, I read Richard Hittleman's book. Yeah. And then quickly realized, I don't think I can learn this from a book. <laughs> and what, when you were practicing, started practicing yoga, it wasn't Ashtanga. It was not. 
Um, and, and fortunately, my first yoga teacher ever was a wonderful woman named Vimala Schneider in Denver, Colorado. And she was with the Ananda Marga Society. And the classes that she taught were very well-rounded. It wasn't just asana. So from the very beginning, I had a good sense that, oh, this isn't just doing those poses like we're in the book. Mm-hmm. She talked about the eight limbs. She um, talked about the philosophy, the diet, the lifestyle, everything. And I really appreciated that. And then she stopped teaching. And we did learn about three or four postures. I continued to do those three or four postures for the next several months mm-hmm. and noticed a dramatic change in my system. So that's what inspired me to look deeper and pursue mm-hmm. other teachers. Then I got into the Iyengar tradition, right? Mm-hmm. the old yoga and fitness center in Denver uh, way back when. And I did a yoga, Iyengar yoga for several years. And then I got on the Ashtanga boat as Richard Freeman was moving back to Colorado. Right. He had been in Boulder. He moved away. He moved back. And that's when I started studying with Richard, which would have been, oh, early 80s. Mm-hmm. And, and what, were you, what were you doing for work? Were you teaching it or what were you doing? What's your background? So... At that point, when I started discovering yoga and practicing, I was actually working for AT and T. I thought you had a corporate background or something. Yeah, yeah, corporate background. Um, Canny hose, pumps, briefcase, the whole bit, trotting off to the office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yoga was my my personal practice. Yeah, that's that's what I heard. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, and you started working with Richard, and then it was later on that you went to India. So how how did that go? How did that? So you you know. Well, how, that yeah, going to India was very clearly defined for me by Guruji. So the first time that Richard Freeman hosted Guruji to come to Boulder, it was a big deal. Mm, mm. <laughs> oh, and he was priming us all. Richard was, oh my gosh, Guruji's coming, you know. We wanted to have everything just right. And there was this, you know, this high level of like adrenaline and expectation and the guru is coming and, you know, don't mess up. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, and that, the, the, I was remember the name, isn't it? Wasn't it a feathered pike ranch? Is that right? It was the old yoga workshop oh. in Boulder that was not a fancy place. And it would hold maybe 40 people, right. you know, be packed. Mm-hmm. And that first time that Guruji came, there was maybe 30-something of us. And I very quickly got over being nervous in his presence as soon as we started the practice. And, of course, this was the first time I met this person. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the class, there was this awkward moment where people would go up and pranam and go to his feet. And most of us had never done that. And we didn't know if we should do that. (laughs) What do we do? What do we do? What are we supposed to do? What's the protocol? (laughs) You know, and I I can remember Richard or Mary or someone just saying, like, 
whatever feels right, do it. Otherwise, don't don't sweat it. Whatever. So, at the end of that first class, I went to his feet and I put my head up, and he's sitting in a chair, and he looks down at me, and he says, "You," because of course he didn't know my name, and I said, "Yes, Kaluji." He said, "You come, my sir." <laughs> and I said, "When, Guruji?" <laughs> That's just the first thing that came out of my mouth. Mm, yeah. Yeah. You, October coming. You come. <laughs> but well, okay then. <laughs> and that was kind of the end of that conversation, and that started my trips to my store in the late '80s. So I've gone to my store 31 times now, and wow. this is winters I'm ever. <laughs> in Colorado through the whole winter. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what did you learn up to with Richard? I mean, how much of the sequence did you learn? And then what did you learn in Mysore? Just to kind of... Oh, I, let's see. Yeah. All of I'm married with Richard. And, you know, this was a process of several years. So, you know, I, into intermediate with Richard. And then, if memory serves me, Guruji finished me off. <laughs> and then taught me A section and B section and started me on C section. Oh, God. Right. You got that far with it. Oh, you got I was. <laughs> I, I mean, I always remember, um, you know, I was a student of John Scott and um, I always said, you know, to him, oh, you know, who, whose practice do you like? And he said, you should see Annie, you know, he used to say, mm. yeah. Mm. So I knew that you were, you know, you were a very proficient asana practitioner um right so how i mean and so how long did that all take you i mean you know that did you know were you were you challenged with it did you go back every year how long did you stay you know this kind of thing. yeah i went back every year and in the old days um when there wasn't such high security um and it wasn't such a problem to get your visa extended and things mm. like that mm. you know in the 90s was like you could say this was like the glory days for Annie Pace because I didn't <laughs> own Dala. I had time. I spent every rupee I had going to India. I would my first trip was two or three months. Um subsequently I would stay six, eight, even ten months at a time in my store. So it it very quickly became my second home. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like I was just in or out or went every few years. Um, it was very, very regular, and um, it was a beautiful experience to have that consistency of being with Guruji, the consistency of being in Mysore and really making it my home, because Mysore has so much to offer that, you know, a lot of people aren't realizing that these days, because they're in a little Gokulam bubble, but mm. um, very, very rich. So... Yeah, and then after I moved to Crestone and became a homesteader, and after I built Shakti Sharna, my shala here, mm-hmm. I really be away for more than two months at a time. Mm-hmm. And I still go. I don't study at the institute, but Mysore is my second home. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just have such a strong connection to the community. Um, it's it just feeds me to be there. Mm-hmm. It's, I'm not there now, and and that's fine. You know, it's like it's a bonus if I get to go. And this year, I'm experiencing my first winter being completely off the electrical grid with Vishala yeah. and my residence. And it's good to be here and 
monitor the systems, et cetera. Uh, so, so, yeah, I'm really grateful for all that time. I mean, I spent a significant amount of time. Going back to the time, I mean, how was it, you know, what, you know, what was your experience of being taught? And, you know, I mean, yeah. And, you know, you were in eight pe- with eight people in the room or 12 people that, you know, you were... Six. 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 There were six. Six. So, yeah, <laughs> that, that says a lot. There was six people. And that's all. And then there'd be two or three shifts of six people. Uh, you know, wait till somebody finished and then you'd go in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And, you know, my first trip, I think there was 10 students there total. Uh-huh. In total. My God. You know, one, yeah. one shift of six and one shift of four, I believe. <laughs> right. So... And I don't, I don't know if you want me to go on from there, but this this can give the kind of historical perspective, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, of, of what happened. And again, I'm grateful for the consistency I had going there because I witnessed what happened over time, over decades. Yeah. And the intimacy of having six students in a room. There's nothing like that. You know, right now, that's exactly what I have here. My shala is about the size of the Olakshmi Poem shala. And I was cramming 12 people in there before COVID. And now since mm. COVID, I have been teaching, but there's six students at a time. And I'm actually loving it. It's like, uh-huh. oh, yeah, yeah. This, this is great. You know, so that went on for my first couple of trips. And then at one point, Guruji decided that we were going to squeeze, God forbid, eight people in the room. Right, yeah. So the mats got a little closer. And then another year went by and, oh, then there was, you know, 10 people in the room. Until at the end, he was um, cramming 12 people into that space. And teaching from, you know, 4.20 in the morning into the afternoon. There was that many shifts of people. The, the Shala in Gokulam. So one of the other things that I witnessed over that time is that, like, I would consider myself kind of the second shift or second generation of people who got on board mm, with yeah. it, right? You know, mm, it was yeah, the Hawaii and California pot-growing yeah. people who got it first, and then... I came along in the 80s. Yeah, I was great. Yeah. And in the 80s and early 90s, there was much more flexibility about, oh, throwing in a bonus pose or a bonus udra or putting a handstand here or something, Mm. something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that most of those, that first shift in people, very adept, 20-something strong young men and women. And they could do all that fancy stuff and not hurt themselves. Mm, mm. And I believe it was somewhat of a science experiment for Guruji. You know, he had never taught Westerners before. He didn't have any intention of doing that until they camped out on his doorstep and wouldn't go away. So, Mm. (laughs) you know, there was, I'm sure, a moment of like, oh, my God, this is my karma, you know. And he hadn't worked with Westerners before. And Westerners are different than Indian people. They're different than the Brahmins. Genetically, 
um, constitutionally how our bodies are. And I've experienced this myself because I've taught many Indian people. And I teach them differently because their makeup is different. Their genetics are different. And they, too, can get away with a bit more as far as alignment and precision and stuff like that because they have, I think, innately more a little more kapha, a little more sattvic energy in their system. Hmm. But anyway, he, you know, he, he let people, you know, do some random variations here and there. And there was never any guided classes. It was all, and he would only do a guided thing for demonstration purposes. So it wasn't until well into the nineties that he started doing guided classes, and I could see it happening because about ninety three, ninety four is when yoga exploded globally. I believe you know where there's this big like everybody was doing yoga. It wasn't just the freaks. Everybody's doing yoga. And so, and then people got turned on to Ashtanga, and a lot of people were teaching in the Western world. Many of those people had not been with Guruji, or they, you know, just saw the sequence somewhere, or they took liberties with it. It's like, oh, well, let's add this here and add that there. And, you know, so what I saw from the inside, being there in Mysore, it was one of my trips that I was there for I think eight months that daily Guruji and Sharat would be shaking their heads in, in bewilderment because <laughs> people would come in doing all this random weird shit. They were adding poses and you know adding all these doodads and all this stuff and Guruji would stand there with his hands on his hips and shake his head and he'd say who is teaching you this method? Huh. And Strat would chime in and say, this is not there. You know? <laughs> mm -hmm. So over time, they, they honed in on, okay, this is the classical sequence. Mm -hmm. Without ads and handstands and extra stuff. Um, so it was... It was a bewilderment at first. They were like, what? what is, where is all this stuff coming from? Right? And I could see that it was coming. Well, these people are coming from places, and they haven't been taught the, the exact classical primary sequence. And so, you know, all this stuff is coming into his little room in Mysore. And he's like, what's going on? So um, that's when they started reining it in and right. saying, it's not there. This is there. This is how it goes. And right around then, um, it was this big deal where we said, okay, every Friday, guided. Because he mm -hmm. had never done it before. So every Friday, he would do guided primary sequence and would stop the people who had not learned it Mysore style. And, and that's kind of key in what's happened with the teaching world today is that teachers aren't stopping people when they need to be stopped. Right. right? So... This guided once a week, from my perspective, seemed, oh, yeah, this is like to put it in its packaging to exemplify this is the sequence. You know, do as much of it as you've been taught, then finish. The rest of you, finish. And so we could hear the counting, hear the vinyasas, um, move smoothly and efficiently without extra stuff. 
So that's what happened. But later on, what happened is that many teachers and and many unqualified teachers, uh, because Ashtanga was so popular, started teaching these guided primary series classes in the Western world. Mm -hmm. And this is how people started to get hurt. And a lot of people got bad, bad taste in their mouth about Ashtanga Yoga because they'd walk into some studio and some teacher just blast them through this sequence of 50 postures without screening, without teaching them the poses one by one, without building up to it. Mm -hmm. uh, I, if someone had done that to me, I would have left that class in an ambulance. So I can see how that happened. And it, it got out of control for a while <laughs> with just anybody blasting through the sequence. And, you know, I consider this practice to be a very precious gift. Um, I feel honored to have it. I just want to ask you one question. Um, yeah. It comes to mind. You know, when David Williams, it may seem a silly question, but you know, when David Williams says that you got taught all four series, and, and you know, that there was an advanced A, no, there was just advanced, wasn't there? And when did it change to having like these six series? Because you said you did like a part of C as well, so, like the fifth so I can't tell you the moment in time, mm. but it was before 1993. So before that, there was just an advanced sequence and it had no, loads of I, I can't see what was before that because I was only doing intermediate up till now, now uh -oh, test the years, <laughs> till about 89 or 90. Okay. It was, yeah, I think it was 90 or 91 I completed A section. So by that time. It was it divided. Yeah. 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 Okay, okay. I don't know <laughs> what before that. And I don't know, maybe it was a, a similar thing about what happened with primary and, and honing it down or breaking it apart or teaching it more slowly. I don't know. But anyway, I'm on a mission to emphasize the importance of teaching the sequences pose by pose, like it was in the old days. Right, right. That's what you know, and um, too many poses, too much monkey mind, it becomes a big circus and people forget the point of what it is that we're doing. I think before going on to your teaching, what did you, um, I mean, you're obviously, you, you know, you're very devoted to Mysore and you, you know, you had a strong relationship with Guruji and I think Chiratji as well, didn't you? Or you, you maybe yeah. have. So, I mean, how was your experience of being taught um, in Mysore with the Tabi Joyce? Was that? Harmonious all the time, or was it difficult? Or, you know? It was hard. It was yeah. very, very intense. Um, but at the same time, it was quite graceful. There was an elegance about it, a preciousness about it, of having that amount of intimacy and understanding what Guruji was the point he was trying to make of being able to get that without him articulating it verbally. Right. That transmission of the two word sentence 
lift it, straighten it. Why fearing? You know, <laughs> why crying? The, the, there was so much behind those little sentences. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I felt like I was really open to receiving the bigger message and the bigger teaching. And it was quite precious. I just was so grateful for that. And yes, it was hard. It was intense. He had me doing two half sequences at a time for a while. Stand on the bigger picture then. You know, say you know, about that. Yeah. And um, I, I'll say this too about the intensity of practice in Mysore. And I know those first generation people, they used to practice twice a day. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But, you know, back then... We were 20-something, and when we were in Mysore, we were not toting around our laptops and working online. You know, we weren't householders. Most of us had a hotel room or an apartment and a cleaning lady, you know, showing up with Guruji was the primary responsibility of the day. And we didn't have to be juggling work and families and jobs and, you know, homesteading and all of this while we were there. And, you know, when you're in that space and you're able to do it, yay, go for it. But then when you come home and you got a wife, three kids and job, no, you can't practice that intensively. It's not realistic. Mm. So for me, it was a lot about, hey, man, seize the opportunity. And, you know, the more time goes on, the more no more gratitude I have for that, that I did that, you know, we we knew it was precious, but, you know, only in, in retro, (laughs) you really see, you know, the the value. So, yeah. When you're saying Guruji is conveying or behind the the words or behind the asthma, something more, you say something about that, that you're feeling that of what he was conveying to you there. So, how shall I phrase this? Because this this is so hard to articulate. Had Guruji's English perfect, he might not have been able to articulate it anyway. (laughs) Right? So, this is what happened for me, is that he would give me an adjustment or an instruction or something that was very simple, sometimes intense. And what happened for me is I was able to internalize that and experience the results of his intention, I think, whatever his intention was, Mm -hmm. on a very cellular level. So the, the teachings that I got and these valuable gems were able to bypass the thinky part of the mind, the manas. It's like it would shoot right into my heart. And I could bypass the thinky part. And I would have an experience. And I believe it has taken me decades to be able to articulate that experience to other people. You know, it was so strong and and somewhat mysterious. And on the other side of that, taught me very clearly what is supposed to be going on in this pose anyway? Mm 
you know, what, what is the point here? What is the primary action in this posture? What are, what are we trying to do or accomplish? Mm-hmm. And what is the foundation in this posture? Mm-hmm. And so those are some of the, the primary um, important bits that I teach. You know, it's like we need to be able to identify where we're coming from and what is our foundation. And then what is the primary action? What is the intention? And of yeah. course, that applies to our life. If we're not grounded, we're not going to get anywhere. And if we don't have a clear intention, we're also not going to get anywhere. So a lot of clarification happened for me, particularly in these bizarro advanced postures. You know, like, what the heck? You know, what's supposed to be going on here? So by him sitting on me or hollering at me or something, I'm, I felt like I got it. Like, oh, oh. And maybe it was... Maybe it was a survival mechanism that you're right. If I don't grab this man, I'm (laughs) and if I don't breathe fully and completely and engage the bandhas, this will not be possible. Yeah. So that is some of the it can be a benefit of challenging ourselves or being challenged. Right. I mean, so your your experience of that that really Positive. Yeah, I'll just just do this and that and put my leg behind my head and one arm and no problem. It's like, uh oh, no, there's a lot going on here. Maybe I need to go in. Maybe I need to really exhale and find Mulabanda. And accompanied with that, ground my standing leg and engage my inner thigh or whatever those um, structural um, alignment mechanisms are. So I don't know, Adam, if that answered your question because it's uh, it's elusive, you know, and it, it's hard to articulate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. I suppose one thing is when you, I mean, and I know from your background, and I know that from the way you talk, that I mean, you have very positive experience of the the assistance from Patavi Joyce from Guruji, and and uh, you know, and felt very positive towards him, which obviously. Not everyone did, you know, but your experience of it was that he was very healing in the touch. Is that right? And Absolutely. I mean, it just like, sounds quite, they sound quite tough. And I remember, I mean, I've spoken to David Williams recently on the podcast and he, he didn't like the adjustments actually, you know, he explicitly says he found them too tough for him. Mm, yeah. um, but no, I think it was all very valuable and very positive. Right. I don't feel like anything that happened that I experienced myself or witnessed in all the time that I was there was ever inappropriate. Right. Okay. Okay. So you, the, you completely, um, you know, clearly, um, Guruji is still Guruji for you very much. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I don't believe that we can rewrite history. I don't believe that we can change the past. And in, that's happening a lot politically right now. And it's happening in America. They're changing American history. Yeah. They're different in the schools now than what actually happened. <laughs> like, mm. oh, no, wait a minute. It was really like this. Like, wait a minute. <laughs> we can't mm. change that. Well, what we do have um, the power to change is our current actions and what happens in the future to set us up for a future with positive experiences and healing experiences with each other. And if the actions that we are taking now are not beneficial to other human beings, I don't think we should be doing that. So it's it's a big picture. And there's so much polarization right now. I mean, 
yeah, there's polarization about Guruji and, you know, how many gurus in the last, you know, five, 10 years have been completely thrown under the bus and created chaos in their sanghas. It's, it's rampant, you know, there's a little piece of what's going on uh, on planet Earth right now. And now we have the political situations and we have COVID and we have so many opportunities for polarity. This is the nature of this is when we are. Mm -hmm. It just is, you know, and, and I see that as having plenty of opportunities for practice and for minimizing the polarity and for healing if we're willing to do the work. Mm. You know, it's not easy. Not easy. You've always been, I mean, although, you know, I knew of you, I knew of you, I knew how, you know, proficient you were and how much time you spend in my school. You've always flown a bit under the radar, haven't you, in terms of the teaching and, and you've been in, you know, in quite a kind of more remote place. Is that, was that on purpose in terms of your teaching method and the way that you approach the practice? Um, I don't think it has much to do with how I approach the practice, but I believe the practice itself, and this isn't just for me, this is in, in a bigger picture, mm -hmm. to frame that, that if we are doing the practice correctly, in an authentic way, the itself is not only going to tame our body, right, our mind, our five sense organs, it, it tames our whole human system. And as our system becomes tamed and balanced, the vrittis are minimized, the mind is calmer, we're calmer human beings, mm -hmm. <laughs> and we can make more intelligent decisions. And most significantly, it, it's like the decisions are made for us. It's not like I ever sat down and said, hmm, well, where do I want to practice and where do I want, I want to teach and where do I want to be? How I make money? Blah, 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 blah. You know, I mean, I did my thing traveling all over the world. I taught in London a bunch of times. And, you know, that was in the 90s. And it's like, okay, well, no, I want to settle down in Homestead. And I have my own personal values of living in a clean environment and building this place. You know, so so the place, the location, how things are done here at Shakti Sharanam is the outflow of the practice. Mm. And there isn't a big decision making process. I mean, don't don't you experience that that you know, before you start practicing, it's like and I'm just I'm totally making this up, okay? It's like someone. Mm. Well, which bar should I go to tonight? You know. Which you know, which fast food place should I go to? Yeah, no, I, no, no, you you're not you're not a million you're not a million miles away, Annie. Um, yeah, I don't. <laughs> that, was, that was certainly my experience. I mean, uh, it it seems like would you say that there's anything that you need to do outside the physical practice, or is it enough? Because I know that you're very into the the uh, devotional practices and the bhakti and the kirtans, but. Um, yeah. or, or, or would you say that just the physical practice is a cleansing, that everything can come just from doing asana? Because you if, don't. I know you, you do other stuff. Well, if it's done correctly, and, and right. this is the if it's done correctly. Right. So yoga is not just asana. You know, it's not just 
putting yourself into those shapes. And this is where people miss the boat and they think it's about doing the poses. And it's, well, how do we do the poses? It's about the breath. It's about the bandhas. It's about the drishti. It's about what happens when we put it together in a sequence of, of specified actions. It's what happens with our sense organs. And if it's done correctly, it works. <laughs> and that, as I was saying, will open the door. The rest will be an outflow of the choices that we have. And generally, the, the field of choices is narrowed, right? There aren't that many multiple choice items even on our radar. Mm -hmm. What television station should I watch? Oh, I haven't had a television in 50 years. You know, it's like, it, it's not there. So things become much more clear as to facts. And so those doors opened for me and opened my heart. And I had the good fortune to have other teachers in Mysore and my music teacher and got very, very into Hindustani music. Mm. That was complemented by the Hedikande Universal Ashram here in Crestone, where I can part and hang out with actual like Brahmin people here in the middle of freaking nowhere because there is this Sangha and there's this temple and there's community of like-minded people. So having those avenues to learn and share has been tremendous. Mm. So again, those, those were natural things, and they came. There was a longing for that. It, it wasn't, oh, I should, I really should, like, you know, learn some of these Indian arts and sciences now. Mm. It was It just happened. Do you think the way that Pasavi just taught you, the guru taught you, was, um, was significantly pointing towards another experience other than asana? Because, I mean, obviously you couldn't convey philosophy, you know, couldn't talk to him, you know, about philosophy and other stuff, but you felt that you got that out of the teachings, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, a lot of that is is transmission, that, that I don't know that that can happen if the student isn't ready, if the teacher isn't clear. You know, if there's too much chaos going on in between. So, you know, back in the day, it was pretty small and pretty simple. And I always liked it. I mean, you, so, you've been there so much and you had, you know, I mean, probably more than anyone I can think of who I, you know, and I've interviewed most people. What's your kind of most profound memory just comes to the top of my head right now of being wow. there? Oh, there's so many profound memories. Yeah, give me a couple. Yeah, yeah. A couple, a couple. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I'll preface that with this. Is that I said to my students, you know, I come back here to Crestone and after the journey from Mysore to Crestone is horrendous. I mean, <laughs> it's brutal. It's brutal. Like, why do you get on that plane and, you know, put yourself through that? You know, it's so much. And, you know, it's often from door to door, it's over a 40 hour journey for me, right? To get from my home to where I'm landing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And every trip, I got to say, there's probably one instant in time that made those 
40 hours each way in the three months that I was there that made all that time worth it. That there was one moment, one that comes to me right now when we're talking about history and um, generations is in the new, well, now it's not the new Shala, but <laughs> he's new Shala. <laughs> there was a moment when Guruji was fading a little bit. I don't remember what year it was, but he was there up in his chair guiding. Yeah, and, was 2007. Yeah. And Sharat was assisting, mm. and Saraswati was assisting. And at one moment, Shraddha, okay, Sharat's daughter. Yeah. He was also in the room. So here we have four generations in the room. And Guruji shouting out instructions and, you know, Saraswati's dropping people back and Sharat's doing this and that. And I was right in front of the stage, in front of Guruji. And um, it'd be fun if Sharat ever hears this story because she probably doesn't remember. But I always carry like a little handkerchief or bandana or something, you know, for sweat control. <laughs> and, you're practicing, and it was at the very end of the practice after backbends. The first thing that happened is I'm in Paschimottanasana, and Saraswati comes by and leans on my back and presses me, you know, after the backbend. And we weren't quite done with our breaths yet, and she she gets off of me, and I've got my head in my legs, and I feel these two little hands on my back giving me this gentle, gentle touch. And it was Shraddha. You know, it's like it, Guruji's great-granddaughter. There she is, you know, 10 feet away from him, pressing on my back. And a few minutes later in the practice, when we were lifting up the new Pletihi, the sweat was dripping off my forehead. She came up with my little hanky and dabbed the sweat off my forehead. That was <laughs> I mean, that's one moment in time, and you know, so many moments. Um, I didn't know realizing, realizing my own limitations and the stiffness in my own mind when I would watch Guruji pass through rooms full of toxic people sweating. You know, I'd be there, little Miss Christine, on my little mat doing my practice, and big guys on either side of me sweating, and there's sweats flying on me. <laughs> and I'm right, you with me? So, and then I'm I'm there, like ew, ick, you know. <laughs> next to me smells like pot or alcohol or I could tell you after dinner, you know. And I'm I'm there getting all annoyed, and and then I'd be in downward dog looking back and I would see Guruji just cruising the room looking at every single person with unconditional love and acceptance without going ew ick here I am in the sea of toxicity <laughs> no it, it, then that was my my experience mm. you know it was I hold that very dearly in my heart and I, and I catch myself mm. doing that ew ick little judgmental thing being a little princess that i am <laughs> i didn't realize you were there practicing to that 
that late in in the in the Gokulam Shah. I was there then. Um, or, or what does I mean? What did your practice? Or how has it evolved now? Like I mean, you know, this is how long have you done it for now? 40, 40 years, right? Yeah, forty years. It's a long so time. I guess at that time you must have been still practicing advanced. At, you know, two thousand seven, six or seven, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. And shortly after that is when uh, I stopped doing advanced. Right. You know, every year that goes by, I do less and less asana. Right. A couple reasons for that. One of them is is age and constitution. You know, I'm a little Miss Vata off the charts. Um, then you get a postmenopausal Vata woman living in a Vata deranged high desert climate. You know, it, it affects you, and mm. it's like. How, you know, how many decades do we have to put in our leg behind our head anyway? Mm. I think I point. So that combined with some, some pretty serious health issues and accidents that have trashed my structural body. Um, it's like, oh, okay, well, all right, I'm not going to do that part anymore. Um, and so I, I did not even enter into this practice in a healthier, flexible body. You know, I've had extreme scoliosis all my life. Hmm. I have some other health issues that I won't go into in detail on this podcast, but I've always been dealing with something. Hmm. And I've gotten knocked down many times physically, structurally. And I've always been so grateful to have have deeply integrated the essence of the practice. I feel like that's that's the greatest gift I've received is the essence of the practice, not the poses themselves. Didn't the poses helped you health-wise in, in a most superficial physical way? Mm. And you know, it, it's gotta come from the inside out. Right. And having a very deep experience with postures and the sequences, you understand, oh, what is the essence of this? What is the characteristics of this? What's going on here? And, oh, I broke my tailbone. Gosh, now what am I going to do? You know, oh, right, I tore my ACL. How am I going to practice? And it was relatively easy for me to explore how to practice in the most debilitating conditions. And I'm grateful for that. All those injuries I've had and all, you know, these challenges that aren't always obvious. I believe has made me a much more effective teacher and working with people who are disabled, people who are elderly. You know, I, I've got 78-year-old little old ladies doing this practice. Hmm. Mm. Are they doing full primary sequence? No. Are they jumping back into the dog poses? No. Sometimes they're sitting in their chair. But they understand breath, bandhas, drishti, vinyasa, and what action it is we're trying to accomplish. So this is where we separate the action from the movement. So if you if you modify and change it, what's the essence of it? You always, I mean, because it frustrates me as one well, people say, oh, you know, oh, I can't, you know, an old person or something can't practice Ashtanga, or it's too, this one's too strong for you. And I say, well, then there's a, you know, this is quite a question of the method itself. And what's the integrity of the method? You've mentioned the breath and the bundle. Oh, so, so that's bullshit. I don't buy that. 
go buy that. And I would challenge that person to come by my Wednesday morning class and see my 78-year-old little ladies, you know, following Can you do Bunda? And yeah, I mean, you know, you don't have to have any limbs to do this practice. So the way that I teach is first, we learn what is the big picture of yoga. You know, what is yoga really? How are the gunas at play? Understand our human system. Understand what happens when, when we practice and why this works. And then understand the, the depth of the breath and the importance of the breath and the practice. So really all you need to practice is to be able to inhale and exhale and show up. And very early on, I'm kind of rambling now, but I'm going back in time uh, before I even knew Ashtanga Yoga. Some of the first classes that I ever taught, I had people of all sorts of disabilities. One of the first classes I taught someplace, there was a blind woman there. Nobody told me, you know, I hadn't had training in how to teach blind people. So I figured it out and I figured out how to articulate. The next class, somebody comes in rolling in a wheelchair. The next class, somebody's missing an arm or a leg or has, you know, some radical thing going on. And I learned early on how to adapt. You know, and, and work with being and, and that's where we need to be looking now is that we're all human beings and not how look much, at our different qualify that? Say hmm? if someone well, how much would you qualify that? Say if someone I mean, you know, the big question here is obviously like modifying a married chastener or something like that. If someone can't do it, how far do you go? You know? You don't do the pose until the actions involved in that pose are integrated right mm -hmm. then you get then you get that pose and when it's time the pose just happens all by itself right it's beautiful to you know slow it down slow it down slow it down pose by pose get the essence understand you know artabata needs to be established before you even think about marichas and a bait you know, so yeah. art there is pointless to torture someone. So for some people, um, their lifelong practice might be doing Suri Namaskar A. Right. In a so chair. Would, yeah, that would just be it. What if they couldn't get out of bad? Could they go on to do other things and, and extra postures? So, you know, that and that this is why it needs to be taught individually. So I can't really answer that question. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. but in, in in respect to is the action there? Is the, in Ardhavada, is the hip joint doing what the hip joint is supposed to be doing? Okay, without breaking the knee joint and the ankle joint. <laughs> Whether one can bind that or not is not as relevant. But it's about teaching action as opposed to this cranking people into unrealistic range of motion that isn't appropriate. And to see the benefit that people get from doing less poses and more correctly uh, is amazing. You know, that's my reward. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, just finally, I, it always struck me that you really pursue yoga as a lifestyle altogether. You know, you yeah. have, yeah, you have this. It is. It is. Yeah, that's what it is. Capacity. 
So how does that how does that transpire to daily life, right? I mean, you talked about diet and food and the way that you live your daily routine. What does that look like? Well, as I've I've been saying, it's an outflow. You know, your your mind starts to make uh, different decisions that might be more appropriate. If practices that you are doing are correct, they're going to take you there. And then, you know, you need to identify in your life, really, where do we have independence and freedom of will to make decisions? And where do we not? You know, I, I can't wave a magic wand and make COVID go away or change the political situation in the world. But I can love people and I can feed people and I can sustain my own human system in a way that I can serve others and serve myself and keep myself functional and healthy in the midst of adversity. So that comes along with setting up your lifestyle. And it's not just a bunch of rules and regulations, but it's choices. It's like making the more sattvic choice. You know, where there's a choice, you know, if the intention is actually yoga in its bigger sense of realization and liberation, Mm -hmm. then we make the choices that are going to lead us in that direction. If your intention is something else, name, fame, circus, whatever, then the decisions are going to be very different. So, you know, we have all got our own past, our own karma, our own past, which we can't change, right? But we can Mm -hmm. soften the blows of the stuff that's not so helpful, and we can enhance the the karmic influence that we have that are helpful. And it does indeed take experimenting, you know, but this, in a way, the lifestyle that I have chosen is quite selfish. It's serving me. I live in a pristine place in a strawbale house off grid in a beautiful place at the base of the San Gordo Cristo Mountains. Um, it's almost like cheating, right? It's like, oh, well, you just in this really sophic, beautiful place, and maybe you don't have to work so hard to detox every day. Living in a city or getting on an airplane or, you know, this is my lifestyle. So, and the sattvic food is a big part of that. Um, traditional Hindustani music, all of it mushes all yeah. together. Separated um, out. What kind of um, what kind of food do you eat? Well, that could be a whole other eighteen podcasts. But you know, I know. But just give a basic. I people love I to follow a vegetarian sattvic Ayurvedic diet. Okay, so things that are sattvic are Vedic are not necessarily sattvic. So that's something that I teach in my cooking classes is you know where do you, you know where do you delineate and get get really particular about that? You know, give some example of the kind of things that would fall into sattvic Ayurvedic. Um. So and well, Adam, who's our audience? Who's listening to this? Um, it's pretty general. Um, probably no, I mean, are really into food to people that are really probably aren't. <laughs> right. So, but do the? I mean, this. I mean, I hardly know you, 
And I don't know who I'm talking to, but when I start throwing out words like sotvik, well, yes, you know what I mean? No. So that would, would, I would say, things that are yogically pure and that would play an upward flow of energy in our body and be calming to our mind, right? To lessen the vrittis, those things would be sattvic. Mm-hmm. So things would be ghee and milk from a brown Brahmin cow. Homegrown curry leaves. No, but we have some nice jerseys, you know? Um, eliminating onion, garlic, leftovers, meat, alcohol, pot, all that stuff. And I I don't like to say too much about that in in kind of a public setting without um, having given quite a bit of background on that, you know. Yeah. I don't like to talk about rules without giving the whys first. And that's a whole class in itself. Well, we can come back to that. I'm trying to do more on food because I was a cook, you know. That's how I started. Mm. Um, supporting myself to to do the yoga. You know, I used to cook for money and, you know, vegetarian. Um, and then, I, yeah, so so I wanted yeah, to do so more on food. One thing that always struck me as interesting, and he's, um, and I bumped into Larry years ago in my school. You know, Larry, your student. Um, uh, I remember, what's he? La Hobbs is his son. Right? And he always mentioned you... Um, you didn't. He followed your principles on diet and and not eating leftovers, which I found interesting. And not even if it's like a day old, you you would just throw it away, right? That meal is that meal, which is interesting for me. I haven't heard right. that. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Mm. About time people heard that. So even if you have the most pure organic sattvic ingredients and you make something, mm-hmm. um, and you don't finish it, and it's like, oh, I'll just put it in the refrigerator and eat mm-hmm. it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Right? It, changes the sattvic energy of the food um it once you have cooked it to then cool it down it turns into a tamasic energy that actually actually creates toxicity in the system and that i mean that's kind of a, a shocking mm. thing well, to yeah. it's quite full on yeah i haven't heard that before i mean obviously you wouldn't eat something which is days old but you know just uh, yeah, I remember him kind of saying, "Well, no, that you know that, that if you don't eat that meal, then we throw it away." And, and, so, and I thought, and now yeah. I know where it comes from. Well, um, we actually, really I cannot throw it away. You know, if you have a cow in the neighborhood, you feed it to the right. cow. Yeah, yeah, or a dog or something. Yeah, yeah. Here, I put it in my compost pile. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes deer get it before it composts, um, or I also have a little line of ant cases previously sattvic frozen entrees <laughs> you can do that you can freeze it straight away and it's still sattvic is it then it's that's a know, get out it's not as bad as being in the refrigerator but yeah. i have i have some members of the community who really enjoy my cooking and don't, okay. don't really care about if it's sattvic or not or realization or liberation which is like my food yeah. so Sometimes if I have extra food, I'll freeze it for them, and I feed people. That's very practically minded, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and Uh, with COVID, I'm threatening to open a drive-thru because I'm having – I feed people a lot. I do the cooking classes. I feed my students. COVID is like, okay, well, no big gathering, so I feed one or two or three people at a time. And I'll just make more, and I'll put it in to-go containers, and people come get it. (laughs) 
It's like, here, here you go. Over your feet, ready at six o'clock. Come on over. Uh, so that's <laughs> one day I'm going to come visit you, taste your cooking. <laughs> and it, it's been a pleasure. I'm going to, um, we always do about an hour, so I'm going to finish there. I'm just going to ask you, um, Give me, um, just to, just to end, uh, one of, uh, uh, it's a silly thing, I always say it, a guilty pleasure and one inspiration. What's your biggest inspiration and what's a little treat you, treat you have just, just to round you off? Just a little treat, a little inspiration. You know, yeah. in, in this time of intense polarity, we, we need to take it as an opportunity formation um, for coming together, recognizing our sameness in human beings, taking a bigger perspective about that. And if all else fails, just love people and feed people. And if 51% of the people on the planet did that 51% of the time, I believe there would be peace on earth. It's not rocket science. You know, it's simpler than we think. Not easy, but it's not as complicated, I think, as um, the human mind makes things. Mm. So simplify. Thank you, Annie. Thanks for coming. It's been wonderful to chat. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Have a good day. Mm.